writing a law and, and saying that it needs to be in good faith, any company could say, well, this is my good faith job range. And so I've seen absurd things on LinkedIn, including jobs that list minimum wage on one side and a six-figure salary on another, abusing this provision of good faith and whatever that means. Welcome to the Lost Debater Show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I'm coming to you live from London, and I think you're on the West Coast. So we are many, many, many hours apart. Indeed. It's 7.30 a.m. here. I've been up uh, digesting some financial news, getting ready for this podcast for a few hours now. How's London? Well, I have to say, of all the episodes that I'm doing with this uh, extra time I'm gaining out here, this one, I, I'm definitely thankful for it, given how complicated some of these stories are we're going to hit today. But I've long been a skeptic of London, but this time I've I've stayed in different neighborhoods, and mm. it is definitely a lot cleaner, and I would say a lot more boring than New York City. Mm. I, I feel like that's the one city that I would consider leaving New York for and nowhere else. I really like it. I don't know the history. I it just has a little more charm and character and a little less grit, which kind of works for me. But I wouldn't leave for LA, even though it's nice visiting here here for a couple weeks. Yeah, it's growing on me. I, I still categorize it with Boston in, in terms of a city that holds itself in much higher regard because of its history relative to where mm-hmm. it is today. But you know, our, our British listeners aren't going to love that comment. But before we get to the stories today, Ricky, we've got a couple of announcements on the front end. We have our show, Pulso y Pendulo, our Spanish language show, which is going to be out with a new episode on Friday. We also have our Citizen Stewart show, which is an education show that I co-host with Chris Stewart, uh, an educational journalist and activist. And we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about, both digesting the midterm results, but actually wading also into a lot of you know, hot issues in education around testing and race. And we... I think we do a pretty solid takedown of Ibram Kendi's ideology on that pod. So you can find either mm-hmm. those, Pulso y Pendulo or The Citizen Stewart Show, wherever you get your podcasts. And also just another reminder that we have a voicemail line and you can leave us some feedback, tell us what your favorite segment is we've done, um, ask questions, whatever you feel like. We're here, 321-200-0570, 321-200-0570. Well, Ricky, we've got a couple of big stories today. We're going to talk about the crypto meltdown at FTX and what that means for the larger industry and the market. We're going to talk about big tech tech layoffs. Some of the biggest blue chip tech companies are laying off huge percentages of their workforce. And we're also going to talk about a debate around salary transparency. But first, let's do a quick update on these midterm elections. Where do things stand? Well, we've had a lot of last few results come in here. Um, Cortez Masto won Nevada. Kelly won Arizona. Um, So the Democrats will be having at least a 50 seat uh, majority with Harris's vote as the tiebreaker. Right now, it looks like Republicans are looking to take the House with at least 215 seats. There are still 15 House districts that are up for grabs, though. So we'll see uh, just how much they'll get the lead there. And um, one kind of hotly watched election that just came in recently is Katie Hobbs defeated Carrie Lake as governor of Arizona. So a lot of eyes have been on that race. Um, but Ravi, how is the election follow up? And for you, what's your take? Well, obviously, a, a lot of Democrats in my life are extremely excited about these results. And, you know, as we predicted, this has led to a lot of soul searching within the Republican Party. And I would say not mm-hmm. a whole lot within the Democratic side. I think people are just generally high fiving each other. And, 
in the next few weeks, I'm slated to attend a lot of these debrief meetings, so I'll have a lot more to say. But I would say as of now, the emails going around, the memos flying around, there's not a whole lot of, hey, we need to make these big changes or even a sense of mm-hmm. what exactly went right. But I would say one thing that I'm hearing a lot of, in addition to obviously the Dobbs stuff where people are saying, all right, like the the energy around Dobbs was the best that they could have hoped for on the Democratic side. There's also this sense that the democracy argument mattered more than a lot of people thought. There was uh, this group called America First, which supported a series of secretary of state candidates in battleground states who were kind of election deniers. They all but one of those candidates lost. And then if you add on some of these candidates like like Carrie Lake and Mastriano, election denialism didn't do very well. And then on the flip side, Democrats invested a lot, like an organization called the Democratic Association of Secretaries of States, which in 2019 had just one staff member, wound up raising $25 million this cycle to sure up Democratic Secretary of State candidates. And it really translated to some huge victories. Essentially, all election deniers, for the most part, running elections in battleground states lost. And then you can compare that to, like, for instance, Republicans like Raffsenberger in Georgia, the ones who basically did their jobs and, and and kept their heads level when it came to this like hot button election denialism stuff, overturning results. Those people fared pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish that everyone would kind of look in the mirror after this election because it seems like uh, voters felt compromised no matter what. I mean, there's no way to spin the Biden's approval ratings going into the election and inflation and just the overall sentiment in the country right now. But um you know, certainly Republicans are uh, thinking about their messaging, thinking about appealing to younger people. I've heard that a lot in my circles. Um, and there's this kind of fracture that's happening and continuing in the Trump-DeSantis uh, divide of uh, MAGA Republican and a, a more buttoned-up version of him, I suppose. But um, it, continuously, Trump has been attacking DeSantis and Truth Social, and DeSantis has been kind of just ghosting him, which I think is the right move. Um, and Trump will have his big announcement from Mar-a-Lago tonight, which we'll see what that is. But all in all, I think that Republican voters are also moving with the general tides of um, a lot of the more conservative media. In a recent poll, uh, 41% preferred DeSantis and 39% Trump, 8% neither. But um, that's a pretty considerable finding that more people at the moment would rather see and in the Republican primary voter base would rather see DeSantis in 2024. Yeah, those numbers shifted pretty fast. That's definitely the first time we've ever seen numbers like that. And like you said, there's there's definitely been some different kind of talk out of certain people. Now, Ann Coulter, who I think has been critical of Trump at times, was pretty hot on on Twitter. She said to Trump, you had your chance with the Republican House and Senate. You handed domestic policy to your son-in-law and Gary Cohn. You handed foreign policy to your son-in-law and a country that gave your son-in-law $2 billion. Shut the fuck up forever. Those are her words. And (laughs) so that's her. Kayleigh McEnany, uh, Trump's own former press secretary, said he should put his announcement on pause. Laura Ingram on Fox News basically went after him uh, went after Trump talking about a populist movement needs to be about ideas, not just about any one person. 
and saying that you can't put your ego or your grudges ahead. And she also has been emphasizing the appeal to young voters, which I think is um, certainly something that conservative media lost sight of a little bit. I think there was an idea of like, we have an older viewer base on Fox and that's sort of who we cater to. And obviously uh, more and more Gen Z voters are coming up and showing showing up at the very critical polls and the very critical elections. And I think there's a reckoning in conservative media that we need to cater to to this whole new voter block as our um, kind of grip on on the older voter base dwindles in terms of cable news. And so on that front, what do you think a message, a GOP message to younger voters would sound like? What should they emphasize and what are some of their policies that you think they might want to jettison? Well, I would say that um, as a young, more right-leaning person, it's certainly not the old school um, kind of social conservatism and neocon values that make me gravitate towards the right at times. It's more there being the closer proximity at times to libertarian ideals in terms of fiscal responsibility, in terms of like something even as simple as vaccine mandates or tax cuts. And so I would say erring towards the libertarian kind of fiscal policies, the libertarian social policies and away from the social conservatism, which I just don't think flies in my generation, but a, a message that is more geared towards live and let live. And you can be socially conservative if you decide to be, and you can also allow for your friends that might live their lives in a different way to do so is probably a smarter way to tack um, in the Republican Party by and large. I think more of the libertarian sort of vibes would do well with young voters. But then again, I'm not a strict partisan in any way, shape, or form. So I'm I'm kind of allergic to strategizing, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is what makes Jared Polis interesting. You know, your reason called him perhaps the most libertarian governor in the country or something like that. They at least asked that question. And I think what makes him fascinating, and I would say not common among Democrats, is that he's trying to stitch together a... Uh, a left-leaning, center-left version of what you're talking about, which is free-range parenting, lowering taxes, somewhat of a deregulation, legalizing drugs in what seems like a more responsible way than states like Oregon, and you know, and also combining some of the social stuff like abortion rights and things like that. And I think he's kind of like a schlubby, like not the most sexy candidate in the world, but to me, I don't know. I don't know if voters really want that Gavin Newsom, you know, winning smile. I think that ideology and trustworthiness will trump, you know, somebody's polish, but only time will tell. One would hope, but I mean, I haven't really seen him adopted into like the broader news cycle. I think he's just very much a darling of the kind of libertarian left, which I'm I'm all for, but I I, I would say yeah. that by and large I'm not hearing a ton of buzz or headlines about him. He so. did crush his reelection. Yeah. So it'll be fascinating to see. And he's obviously, he's also, he's from this Colorado variety of, of pro-school choice, pro-sensible education reform folks, which I would call Bennett, one of them too, who also did extremely well in his election. So hopefully, you know, for me, I'm trying to inject him into the new cycle, but I have a very limited ability to do so. So <laughs> keep an eye on that. 
Well, Ricky, we've maybe done a hundred episodes and this might be the most complicated and long scene setters I'm ever going to have to do because there's a lot happening with this story. Let me start with Warren Buffett, who famously said, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. And the tide has gone out for crypto earlier this year. And we have a naked swimmer in the 30-year-old Sam Bakeman Freed, who is the founder of FTX, which was once the third largest crypto exchange. A week ago, he was worth $15.6 billion. He's now worth next to nothing in what Bloomberg called one of the greatest ever destructions of wealth. Now, things started to crack publicly for SBF and his firm, FTX, on November 2nd. The news site Coindesk published published the balance sheet of Alameda Research, which is a crypto trading firm and hedge fund that was also started by Sam Bankman-Fried. And what Coindesk alleged in his reporting was that uh, FTX, the exchange firm, and Alameda Research had an incestuous relationship where funds, funds were flowing freely between the two. The exchange, FTX, had lent $10 billion of its $16 billion crypto assets that customers had entrusted it with to Alameda Research, to the hedge fund. So essentially, they were taking deposits from one exchange and lending them out to a very risky hedge fund. And that led uh, Changpeng Zhao, who is the boss of Binance, which is a rival exchange, to announce that his firm would liquidate its holdings of FTT, which is the coin that the token that FTX issues. And just to pause there for a second, so we have a competitor, Binance, which was holding a lot of the coin in FTX in their competitor. Once all this news broke, they liquidated their holdings of that coin, which precipitated a run on FTX. That day, FTX processed $4 billion in transactions. Some of those got backlogged, which led to a panic an even more aggressive run on FTX. Binance, the competitor, then offered to ride to the rescue and buy FTX only to back out after they looked at FTX's books. They said that the financial situation at FTX was, quote, beyond our control or ability to to help, end quote. SPF then called up investors in FTX, begging for a bailout. That bailout didn't come. FTX and 130 affiliated companies filed for bankruptcy the next morning. The SEC and DOJ are reported to be investigating. Sam Bankman-Fried has, has resigned as CEO of FTX and all of these companies. And as a side note, Michael Lewis, the acclaimed writer of Liars Poker, Moneyball, The Big Short, has been embedded with Sam Bankman-Fried for the past six months. So that is sure enough to be a thrilling read. Yeah, this is like completely a mess. I mean, the optics of looking at this guy who's in the Bahamas, basically like shacking up with this small group of people. His girlfriend is running the research firm that is investing in his own currency and they're pulling money from the people that invested in the cryptocurrency to basically hold up their stock price. And it's just this like, I mean, watching the leadership of that's at the helm of so much money. The The girlfriend is kind of giggling about like, yeah, I don't really do a lot of math here. Yeah, absolutely could pull it off without my math degree. <laughs> use very little math. Um, use a lot of like uh, elementary school math. <laughs> 
it's just like this weird frat house in the Bahamas that ran away with everyone's money. I mean, it's unclear whether customers will see their money in the end, especially because there are so many illiquid uh, funds that that FTX was holding. Um, They had nine billion dollars in liability, only nine hundred million dollars in liquid assets and three point two billion in completely illiquid assets, which was a lot of crypto. And then the entire crypto market fell because of FTX falling from grace. And so now their illiquid assets are even more illiquid at the moment. But then you have SBF and his philanthropic kind of veneer that he had going and he's on stage with Bill Clinton and he's kind of like this wonder kind crypto god that everyone's looking up to and really admires and he's and he's so generous and he's talking about hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in political donations and then all of a sudden it turns out it's it's all I mean I, we can speculate whether or not he was purposefully deceiving people or whether he was just so incompetent that it's grotesque at this point but um it all seems to be certainly a veneer well on the question of whether he committed fraud so it seems that the original sin happened earlier this year you know if you remember there was this big shakeup in crypto when certain companies like terra luna voyager etc blew up it appears that alameda which is this research arm slash hedge fund that you were saying that allegedly his girlfriend was running mm-hmm. what started to take a big loss at that point because they had been somehow, I think, entangled with those companies going under and then also started bailing out some companies around that time, which also seemed to be some really bad bets. And so it seems like at that time, Sam Bankman-Fried loaned money out from FTX to Alameda and used very suspect collateral. I think he was using his own token as collateral. And Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, said that this was the moment when SBF probably crossed the line into committing fraud. And Armstrong had a helpful descriptor of all this when he went on the All In podcast. Sam basically said, um, hey, we have a bunch of customer assets over here at FTX, or he somehow basically made a loan from FTX into Alameda to try to prop it up. I don't, I don't know why he did that. I mean, that, that's the moment in my mind where he crossed the line into probably committing fraud. And I, I think he probably lied to users, lied to investors. If you're a a financial services business, but not a bank, you're required to hold customer assets one-to-one, denominated in the same asset that your customers uh, believe that they're holding funds. So if customers put dollars in and they believe they're holding dollars, you need to hold dollars. If it's euros, you got to hold euros, unless you're a bank, in which case, as we all know, bank can loan money out. And there are all sorts of requirements for banks to hold a certain amount of assets relative to the amount of money that they lend out. So it seems to me that at a very basic level, Sam Bankman freed, even though they're in the Bahamas, which is a whole other story, might have been a foul of this requirement to just hold a certain amount of assets on his books. And it's important to note that there are two pretty considerable obstacles to criminal conviction in the U.S. with the Justice Department and the SEC investigating. But it seems like both of them could be overcome. But the first is, as you just mentioned, the Bahama base, because um, he can make the argument that he wasn't catering directly to American consumers. And so therefore, um, anyone trying to catch him on a charge would have to find a nexus link to Americans, which it seems like shouldn't be too difficult, especially considering how much of 
of his um, operations are rooted through America and all his emails and his his massive um, digital trail that connects him to our country. And then the second, as we touched on before, is the intent and whether it's incompetence or deception. And I mean, I think neither of us are experts, but looking from in from the outside, it seems like there's certainly towards the end, more and more degrees of deception where they know that they're going under and they're um, doing everything to save face. But um, one anonymous crypto lawyer who spoke to the press um, with the condition of anonymity said that also the terms of service of FTX, um, their presentations to investors, and also some of um, Sam's public statements seem to reveal that there probably is more than just downright incompetence at play here. Yeah, what's fascinating is we talked about the experts. One thing I found coming into this research was I was thinking to myself, well, I don't really understand everything that's going on here. I got rid of all my crypto in January in part because I was just, it doesn't pass the test for me, crypto, of truly understanding what it is that I was investing in, which is just like a a basic requirement I personally have. But then as I was going through these stories, I was like, nobody's an expert on this stuff, mm-hmm. right? So you look at the investors, the people who are supposed to know the most here, Sequoia Capital, which is a storied blue chip of the blue chip Silicon Valley venture capital firm. They had to write down $120 million of their investment in FTX to zero. Now, companies, this is part of investment. Some things go to zero. Some things do really well. But it was their... There was just some of the things they were saying around this investment to me gave me pause about whether this VC firm really has the right controls in place. First of all, when they made their initial investment, they wrote this hagiographic letter about uh, Bakeman Freed as he had an awesome intellect. He was a future trillionaire, which, okay, maybe that's just fluff. But then after all of this went down, they wrote a letter to their investors basically doubling down on their own Mm -hmm. due diligence, saying that they basically conducted due diligence and they stand by their due diligence. And it just reminds me of these texts going back and forth between Mark Andreessen, who runs one of the other big storied Silicon Valley firms um, around Twitter, where he's basically like, yeah, like here's some money for Twitter and his investment in uh, Adam Newman's new housing startup and all that, which is that just makes me wonder, are there even that many like sound controls in a lot of these venture capital firms? Mm-hmm. It makes me just wonder whether they're just kind of going by gut. Yeah, I mean, I think on the crypto front, it's just so new and so ripe for um, people doing things like this because it's it's completely unregulated. It's We don't really have the big players that have long established themselves. And I think that this is probably not the last person to go down in flames. But one thing that's interesting to me about this guy in specific is just like the level of clout that he was able to draw to himself, even though if you watch his interviews, he's remarkably like he seems very nervous and he's like he doesn't really have tremendous stage presence to say the least i don't spend a lot of time outside i'm I'm pretty much just in the office so you don't look like you have a tan or anything no no not so much he managed to kind of surround himself with some of the most powerful people in the world and he's on panels with with bill clinton and so it seems like oh i should trust this guy of all guys in the crypto sphere and not some some random guy who's mining in his basement or whatever equivalent but it's amazing to me that I've I wasn't even aware of this guy before this story came out 
And he's the Democratic Party's second biggest donor behind George Soros in the last election cycle. Just enormous amounts of money. And he was teasing that maybe he'll he'll donate billions of dollars into uh, politics. And so I just it seems like such a level of delusion from him that he he obviously knew to some degree how he was cycling his own assets in order to inflate his his the value of his company. And yet here he is doing the um, like press circuit and saying that maybe maybe I'll become the biggest donor of literally all time to political causes. And so I think part of the allure and the the way that people got pulled into him, uh, if they're going to decide to invest into crypto of all things, is a lot of crypto people are seen as fringe and and kind of um, in the outside anarchist world. And here's somebody who's actually pretty notable in our political sphere and and has kind of the stamp of approval from people that are that are trusted and once you have one venture capital firm behind you everyone else says oh huh i think this guy looks pretty trustworthy and so i would say it's amazing like how how big his facade was that he managed to construct for himself here yeah actually and and i know his mother and his brother, I used to collaborate with them in democratic politics. His mother is a Stanford law professor. And we, when I was running arena, uh, my political action committee, they had a political action committee called mind the gap where we would do joint fundraisers together. So I spent a lot of time with this family. I don't think I've ever met him, but his mom and brother are very, were very powerful in, within democratic politics, even before he started making this kind of money. And I was prepared to come on here today and be like, but he also gives to Republicans. When I looked at those numbers, they're tiny. Well, it's it's 90% to Democrats. And he also gives to Romney, Murkowski, Collins, like the um, kind of anti-Trump Republicans, which completely within his right, no criticism of that specifically. But I think to a large swath of Americans, they wouldn't look at that and say like, oh, this is a representative choice of Republicans to donate to. Yeah, and there's this big question about what is crypto? We've been talking about this for a while and what role should it play? And I think what's fascinating about SBF is that he has been rather public about the fact that he has viewed this as largely speculative. Even though he has Mm -hmm. been a big champion of this industry, he gave an interview to Bloomberg in April in which he basically admitted that a lot of this yield farming, which is essentially when people take these coins and then they actually start loaning it out and trading these coins that they create and double, even tripling their yields by lending it out, borrowing it against it, et cetera. He basically admitted in this interview that it was a Ponzi scheme. And there was a really good uh, write-up from the Bulwark a couple of days ago by Jonathan Last in which he essentially asks, well, the purpose of finance has always been that you're supposed to actually finance stuff in the world, right? Like mm-hmm. part of what we do, it's not supposed to be a casino. It's supposed to be a, a way to move money around to invest in things that are for the societal good or that actually goods and services that people want. And I, like you, believe people should be able to gamble. But I do think it's important for people who are crypto maximalists to take a step back and say, yes, there are really important use cases of crypto, remittances, et cetera. But a lot of the stuff, the froth in this market is not particularly useful to society outside of the sort of trading and betting back and forth between people in a very volatile uh, speculative industry. Yeah, I mean, I think that this specific FTX example is 
in a way, like completely antithetical to crypto because the whole idea of of Bitcoin and the blockchain is this decentralized, like everyone owns a little piece of the the puzzle here and no one person can bring it down or regulate it or inflate it. Like it's 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 all like kind of democratized. And then it's this is certainly an example where one person was able to just invent up a coin, invent up the stock price, essentially using the money invested into the coin, uh, inflate valuation, and aggressively centralize a currency to a degree that no governmental currency, unless you're in like an authoritarian dictatorship, really could be centralized. And so I think this sort of test case of a weirdly centralized cryptocurrency goes to show that there is Certainly, there's a lot of speculation here. Certainly, there will be a lot of trial and error. I still think that a decentralized currency will end up having tons of use cases, especially in scenarios where people are being repressed by their governments. I think Ukraine was a great example of that. Um, but I I can completely say that in terms of being crypto maximalist and saying that every single crypto exchange or every single coin is a great bet, that's certainly not the case. And I think there was a lot of hype in a sense that maybe this is totally the future, no matter who gets their hands on it or who gets their paws on it. But this is, this is a demonstration that um, there's going to be a lot of trial and error, I think, in this space for quite a while, even among the big guys in the running. Yeah, there's definitely a, a clear delineation here between the decentralized and centralized players here. So Uniswap, uh, their CEO, this guy Hayden Adams, which is he's kind of a more low key version of SBF. He's he's he keeps a lower profile. He's a proud Binghamton grad, so shout out to him. He basically reiterated the "not your keys, not your crypto" mantra on Twitter, essentially saying self custody is really important here, and this is just another lesson there. Meaning there are these people who you know the original crypto market was people who were keeping things in cold storage or hard drives. Now, obviously that has its own risks. Mm -hmm. So if you keep your own crypto, that means it could be stolen. That means something could happen to your hard drive. It, it means you could forget passwords. We've all heard stories about this kind of stuff. But I think at base, as we, as we kind of draw our lessons from this, I think people need to start asking their, themselves because there's so many people full of shit on this. And there are also people I think like us who are quickly trying to figure out a very complex market where there's just so much bullshit, it's hard to know who's yeah. really saying something worth listening to. I would say, I just asked myself this morning, forget it, all these people and all these so-called experts who've been wrong so many different times about this stuff. Ask yourself one question, which is if you're buying something of significant value, whether it's a house, a stock, a work of art, what do you want? And I created a list of certain things I would want. Number one, I'd want some price stability, right? I don't want to buy something that is going to wildly fluctuate in price because if it's a lot of value to me, I can't really afford to lose it. Two is I would want some liquidity in the market, meaning there are a lot of people buying and selling it. You don't want to be stuck with a thing. Like let's say you bought a, a work of art and it even if it appreciated but you can't get rid of it, that's a problem. Uh, you also want verified sellers and protections against fake assets. So like if we're using the work of art example again, you want to make sure that you buy something, you know it's that thing. And then you want to know what the thing is. So if you're buying a work of art or you're buying a cryptocurrency, you want to actually understand what it is. So I don't trade in art because I don't know a lot about, about art. I got out of crypto because I, don't, I didn't understand the stuff. And when I heard people explaining it, it made less sense to me, not more. 
And so I think those are some of the questions that people need to ask individually. And I actually think that dovetails what the regulators are going to be asking because when he was on the All In podcast, basically was calling for his own industry to be regulated, which the Uniswap head also has done. I think a lot of people in the industry are saying, now we got to clarify, are these commodities, are these securities? Is this the Securities and Exchange Commission? Is it the CFTC? And I think that's where we're going to go from here. Yeah. I mean, actually, one sort of silver silver lining here that I see is that somebody who obviously has donated such a considerable amount of money to regulators that potentially then would have been in the position of regulating him is now out of the circle and out of that sphere of influence. I think that could have been, I mean, potentially extremely corrupt if you have the number two political donor to a party and that party is now supposed to put guardrails on their company. So at least we got that out of the way. And I think that will um, remove some of the complications in the regulatory process. But I certainly agree with your um, standards for investment. I think for me and my my very modest crypto investment, it's just money that I'm comfortable doing the hodl thing with. And I, I know that that's a kind of long-term speculation. And I um, really cringe for people whose entire savings or a large portion of it ended up in that one speculative asset. But by and large, I think some degree of personal responsibility going forward. I think these cautionary tales, even if it's not completely regulatory, I, people might be a little more concerned about putting their money behind cryptocurrencies that they don't really know the story behind or, or even like meme coins. I think that will probably be a thing of the past. But by and large, I, th- I think the lesson here is that certainly you can develop quite a lot of of buzz and clout around you with basically nothing behind it. And that's a pretty disturbing thing. Yeah, and I think there's been so many SBF stories that have been traded over the past few weeks. The most interesting one was actually from Chamath on the very same podcast that we're talking about. He pitched us in that $17 billion round, and I did a Zoom with him. And after the Zoom, I'm like, this doesn't make much sense, but I'll have my team do some work. We did some work, and we sent him a two-page deck, and we said, here are our recommendations for taking the next step. One was the formation of a board. The second was the creation of dual class stock. The third was some reps and warranties around affiliated transactions and related party transactions. And the person that worked there called us back and literally, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding you, said, go fuck yourself. Basically what he's asking for is these companies need boards of directors. That's why if you're a public company like Coinbase, they are a public company board of directors. They have audited financial statements. They have the one-to-one um, reserves that we talked about. They're just, there's, I know a lot of people, there's going to be this sense of contagion within the, the crypto market, which by the way, isn't true of the rest of the market. This was a fascinating example. People are comparing this to Enron and the dot-com bubble burst, et cetera. But what makes this different is it's not taking the whole economy down yet Yeah. with it. The S&P 500 was up last week related to crypto. But I think what we see here is that this should operate like a real company. Uh, now, these, the, there's nothing stopping people from being private companies, but once they bleed over to fraud, uh, they can wind up getting the cuffs. But even if they don't even bleed over to fraud, hopefully this will push a lot of people investing to say, all right, I'm going to probably only invest in a publicly traded company when I'm entrusting all of my assets to it because I want some level of transparency about what these people are doing with my money. Absolutely. And I think just a quick Google search can uh, find you a lot of videos that 
demonstrate that this group of people that were um, controlling this enormous amount of wealth were quite literally like this weird little ragtag gang of almost Greek life type people, the way that they had this little like frat down in uh, the Bahamas. But I think this is just one of many now uh, techie companies that is on the decline, uh, moving along to the stock market more generally and away from the crypto space. Major tech stocks right now are seeing what is being likened to a second dot-com bust by many people watching the markets. Um, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Netflix, all the big tech players that have been on an upward rise for years and really rallied during the pandemic, potentially because they kind of had a stranglehold on people and lockdown and their modes of communication as tech companies are now tumbling from highs in roughly like 2021 is where they peaked. Um, Amazon's down 47%, which is shocking to me as somebody who's seen Amazon business just skyrocket post-pandemic. Meta's down 70%, Netflix 56%, Lyft 80%, Snapchat 87%, all from their relative highs. And then kind of Typically more stable tech stocks like Apple is even down 18%, Microsoft 29%, Tesla 36%. And so um, huge layoffs. It's It seems like there's certainly something reminiscent of a smaller scale second dot-com bust going on. Yeah, I think that there's a distinction between some of these companies and, and much the same way as the, the crypto companies that we were talking about in the sense that there's a difference between Lyft, Snap, Meta, who are laying off double digit percentages of their workforce while also suffering like fundamental problems with their business. Mm -hmm. Like a good example is Meta, which we've covered, which basically invested in the metaverse tons of money. And it's basically been a flop so far while also seeing more cyclical issues with its ad business, which you could imagine going back up. Yeah. They're, that's different to me than Amazon and some of these other companies that actually have fared pretty well, right? Like, so mm -hmm. Amazon announced uh, a cut of less than 1% of its workforce, 3% of its corporate staff, even though its stock has, uh, has, has decreased double digits this year. Microsoft, very similar numbers, right? And so what you're seeing yeah. from them is maybe they didn't overhire and make bad investments in the way that, say, a Snap or a Meta did. And when I'm looking at those companies, I'm like, well, this is pretty standard stuff, what they're doing, versus what's happening to places like Meta seem to be hugely problematic. You know, Meta, Twitter, like we're talking about huge percentages of their workforce combined with some other, you know, flashing red warning signs about these companies. Definitely. I mean, I think Twitter is sort of an exception to carve out into a separate sphere since it was just acquired by Musk and acquired in pretty dire states in terms of its finances, its business model. And so that's one that I would want to kind of watch and wait and see what happens. But certainly Meta is having a um, kind of a look in the mirror right now. Zuckerberg is taking responsibility for a layoffs of 11,000 employees. Employees personally, that's about 13% of their workforce. Um, and that's following the story that we've covered pretty extensively of their really enormous investment into the metaverse and their shift of even changing their name and going down this really speculative route, even though even even if Instagram and Facebook's numbers are struggling a little bit and they didn't have quite as many active users in recent reporting rounds, I think it's still quite a um 
ballsy move that Zuckerberg made to say we are going to go entirely into the metaverse realm. Uh, Huge percentages of their employees said that we don't really understand what that route looks like or what that really means. And so to see see people who are moving into this more theoretical next step of social media sphere uh, really struggle with those very speculative investments, including Snap as well. Um, that's certainly interesting. And I think that there are some parallels to be drawn to the first tech bust, which was between 1995 and 2000. The Nasdaq, which is he- was heavily tech at the time and still is, went from 1,000 to 5,000 in its valuation. Um, it was the so-called irrational exuberance that that the then Fed chairman, Alan Greenspan, referred to it as where a lot of these companies were new and exciting and uh, investors were really into the idea of jumping in at, at uh, first grabs. And it fell 77% by the aughts and only built back up to that peak in 2015. And I think we have another moment where we've definitely settled into the saturation point with social media where I it's hard to see how a company like Meta could capture considerably more users. They're being used across the entire globe, across all sort of socioeconomic spheres. There are impoverished nations where having a Facebook account is more common probably than even having clean water in some circumstances, which is really shocking to see. My mom recently went down to El Salvador and is friends with the people that she helped dig a well for who had Facebook accounts. And so I think mm-hmm. the the growth for a company in that traditional social media realm is definitely past the saturation point. And now we're seeing this similar um, speculative move that isn't panning out in the short term, but perhaps in the long term, Zuckerberg will turn out to be right and we'll all be in the metaverse. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Well, I think what's fascinating, that comparison to the tech boom, because I, I knew a lot of people at the time who got wiped out by it, you know, that number you talked about, I think it was 76% or something mm-hmm. on that order yeah. within two years, right? Within two years, it went down 76%. And if we're benchmarking where we are now mm-hmm. to that, we're about half that in terms of value destruction in the past year. Yeah. So obviously, if we had another year like this, we're talking about something on the order of magnitude of the tech bubble bursting but there there's some fundamental differences one is that this is a much more mature tech industry and although there are startups that are affected by this a lot of the the leading indicators are coming from legacy players like at the time in the early 2000s you just didn't have tech companies that had been around yeah. that long and so they were some of these companies were fly by night operations like pets.com that hadn't existed very long, didn't have a proven business model. Most of these companies have proven business models. You talk about like a company like Microsoft is highly diversified. It has mm-hmm. Xbox. It has obviously the office suites. A lot of these have cloud computing. You know, Amazon is a great example where it's everything from your Whole Foods to you know the online marketplace to Amazon Web Services. I mean, we're talking now one medical. We're talking about highly diversified companies with a lot of revenue streams. It's not just a a URL. Which, by the way. Like the lesson of the tech burst in the 2000s, a lot of people take from that, hey, like, yeah, there was a lot of value destruction, but a lot of companies like Amazon came out of that. And even the laughing stock companies like pets.com make a lot of sense. They were just a little early. Like the idea that pet, like buying pet food online, it wasn't a crazy idea. It was just a little bit ahead of its time, you know? I mean, maybe I'm putting my foot in my mouth a little bit here, but I kind of feel like the crypto analogy of like, we have this burgeoning uh, industry and a lot of players and some are 
going to go well and some are go- or potentially going to go well and some are certainly going to fail pretty spectacularly. It's a similar sort of situation with a lot of speculative investments. But I also think that there's like the element of an artificial sort of uh, inflation that a lot of these tech companies got during the pandemic when we're all locked down in our houses, when we didn't want to go and buy groceries so it's easier to have Amazon deliver it, or we don't want to go to the hardware store and so Amazon delivers it, or we don't want to go to a meeting and get sick and so we go and do Zoom meetings. And Zoom was a new IPO that's been struggling considerably. Um, And so I think that there's certainly a a weird scenario that we created where even our just like we want to talk to someone and so we'll talk to them on Instagram and DM them because we don't see them in person anymore like there was a an artificial scenario in which tech companies became even more necessary and just functioning in daily society to a point where I think they kind of had an artificial bump in the pandemic when that probably wouldn't have been the case otherwise had that not happened, even though they had been doing well for years and years and years. But they almost had this like stranglehold on all of us for a short period of time. And I think now we're getting our footing and moving back into kind of a hybrid world. And there's a little more suspicion of the idea that these companies can continue to just grow endlessly. Yeah. And we got to remember, we have to put it in perspective too, where some of these companies expanded dramatically during the period of time you're talking about. So Meta expanded its head count by about 60% during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So they obviously added a lot of people and they were doing it in this remote setting. And it's not at all clear that they were keeping tabs on the people that were working for them. So in the New York Times write up about all this, they said, quote, rumors often circulated of highly compensated workers who clocked just a few hours a day or juggled multiple remote jobs at once alongside elaborate office perks like free laundry, massages, and renowned cafeteria chefs. Uh, And there is this this website called The Blind Blog, which does workplace insights, like polling workers at some of these tech companies, they released a report in January 2021, so right in the middle of the pandemic. This is what they found. 31% of professionals say they work three to four hours a day. 27% said they worked five to six hours a day. And 11% said one to two hours a day. So that is the vast majority that are working six or fewer hours a day and nearly, you know, over 40% that are doing four or fewer hours a day. That's not a lot. And then if you look at it company by company, 43% of eBay workers said they were working three to four hours a day, 43%, three to four hours. 50% of Airbnb workers said five to six hours a day. And 25% of Capital One workers said they were working one to two hours a day. That's them reporting on their own behavior. (laughs) So this... This gets you to something really, really startling, which is I don't think managers were managing. Certainly. I think in this this era of cheap money, it it was almost like a show of strength to be like, I'm adding to headcount. Mm-hmm. And I think managers, it was easier for managers to just hire more people than to do the hard work of saying, hey, I'm going to meet one-on-one with every one of my direct reports every week. I'm going to, you know, create controls within the system, like stand-up meetings and clear KPIs for my workers to say, all right, what are people doing? Are Is everybody here 
serving the bottom line of this company, I think I think people really got away from themselves on this stuff. Yeah, certainly. And I, I mean, even if there were cracks kind of showing from the inside, none of them were really outward until these companies started posting losses and declines in, in users um, in terms of social media companies. And so I think certainly for the first time, they had to look inward and say, okay, where are our accesses now that the stock is reacting to what might have been dysfunction that was obvious on the inside if you only had people working for an hour or so a day. I mean, that's that's sort of shocking to me, uh, but also makes me laugh at the fact that Elon Musk was getting demonized for saying that he wanted people to come into the office and stop pretending to work from home. <laughs> I love that. Quote. I feel like that kind of indicates him a little bit. And he's he's a he's running a tech company now. And if he's inheriting one in which people are working one to three hours a day, I would say I'm kind of with them. Come into the office. Right. And we're I don't know. full transparency for us. We are a in-person office culture, this podcast notwithstanding. We're normally in the office together in New York. We have been since the inception of this company. And we're doing a remote month for the month of January. And we view this as a huge experiment. And we're doing a whole day training about it. Where we're reading books together to talk about our systems. We're building all these systems around it. Now, we still may fail. We may still see a productivity decrease because of that. But I think in part, and, and this is where I, I let people off the hook a little bit in the beginning of this pandemic, is that obviously nobody planned for the pandemic. And so I think a lot of managers, a lot of these are new managers because these companies are expanding. They got young people inside of them. In some cases, they're run by young people. So even the middle managers are super young and inexperienced. A lot of people didn't know how to handle this. And I think a lot of times also, it's there's just sometimes not enough work to go around. But I think the hard choices are coming. Yeah, certainly. And I think there's also the whole additional element of like weird Gen Z workplace vibes where I know a lot of people in my cohort kind of feel like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to close my laptop at this certain hour and I'm going to leave and, and define my boundaries and my work life balance. And there's kind of like a phase shift in the way that people are treating work. And a lot of those young grads are moving to tech companies. And so I think that's kind of leaking into this entire scenario at the same time. The change in office culture is certainly, um, I think, in large part being pushed by a generation that has a totally different outlook on on work productivity and work ethic than kind of the traditional American view. Well, we, we talked about exits. Let's quickly talk, Ricky, about entrances into these companies. There's this new law in New York around pay transparency that sparked a big debate. Give us the basics here of this law. Yeah, so this went into effect just for the city on November 1st. And now all companies that have more than four employees need to post their pay ranges in any job posting, promotion opportunity, transfer opportunity, et cetera, um, on LinkedIn or wherever they might be advertising a position available. And the contingency here is that the law is says that it needs to be in good faith and that the pay range that they provide needs to demonstrate that they honestly believe that this is essentially the pay range that they are willing to give someone. And so because that is such a vague standard, um, both in terms of just writing a law and, and saying that it needs to be in good faith, you could theoretically go after anyone for that. Or conversely, on the flip side, any company could say, well, this is my good faith job range. And so I've seen absurd 
things on LinkedIn, just doing some background research here, including jobs that list hourly wages and full-time salaries that are completely disparate, like minimum wage on one side and a six-figure salary on another. Um, there's a c- city advertised a job listing, Citibank, that was between $0 and $2 million in salary. And uh, <laughs> the city's own office, New York City office, their general counsel position is listed for between 106000 to $241,000. And so this is demonstrating that the people in the government are also kind of abusing this provision of good faith and whatever that means. Um, and so it's <laughs> definitely been a, a sloppy rollout and there have been quite a few memes as a result. Yeah, it's really hard to be super prescriptive in some of these laws, but the, one of the city council members, Justin Brannon, basically said, hey, looking at the, these wide ranges, they may have to revisit this law. Certainly. Putting aside the, the the details of how they're implementing it, I think there are a lot of reasons why transparency is good, it, especially things that are easy to be transparent about. Mm-hmm. Like when it comes to salaries, the pros here are obviously if there are gender or racial disparities, this helps to suss those out. It, I think in some cases this is good for companies because it, it allows them to see what other companies are charging, which has its own risks because it could lead to some kind of collusion, which has been alleged in certain industries like tech in the past. Yeah, It allows companies to control the narrative because I think often what happens is, this is my sense. I've been managing people since I was in my mid-20s. And without exception, the vast majority of people I've managed think they are in the top whatever percent of performers in their category. And, you know, hopefully people, I would hope to think that I'm running companies and nonprofits that attract people that are top performers. But uh, people even rate themselves relative to their peers at their companies really high. There was this Harvard Business Review article that looked at 700 engineers from two large Silicon Valley companies and the results were crazy. Nearly 40% of them felt they were in the top 5%. Let me repeat that. Nearly 40% felt they were in the top 5% and 92% felt they were in the top quarter. Mm-hmm. And this has definitely been my experience. And then my experience has also been that those very same people think they're underpaid relative to their peers. So I think uh, some transparency around this kind of stuff is helpful because you could say, look, like this is what the average is in this industry. This is what the average is at this company. This is what the actual salaries are of your peers. And you know, a whole separate conversation about how people assess themselves relative to their peers, because obviously 40% of people can't be in the top 5%. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm suspicious of this being a mandated rollout in the way that it is. I do feel like there has been a kind of cultural move towards more salary transparency. And I think this kind of almost is a, a step backwards in that sense, because it at the very least demonstrates that these companies don't really care to be transparent at the very most could potentially demonstrate that salaries are so wildly disparate if if these are the genuine salary ranges that there's really no point in having transparency in the first place if the system is being abused to the point where you have people doing the same job for $15 an hour or $125,000 salary i mean it's it's kind of shocking these ranges but i would say i I think there are better versions of this law that have been rolled out Um, in Colorado, California, and Delaware. There's a more specific law that you can't uh, retaliate against an employee for talking about their salary with a coworker. And I think that's probably a little healthier. Also, I think companies that decide to make this 
this decision and put have tra- salary transparency in the first place get rewarded by uh, potential employees who are attracted to that openness or even can use that openness to shop somewhere else and say, well, this job is listing X, Y, and Z. And so I think setting kind of a precedent there and allowing the free market to shift towards that is a healthy thing. I also think it's very much um, kind of related to who has the upper hand at a certain point in time. A lot of the lack of transparency with salaries, um, experts point to the post-2008 kind of unemployment struggle and the fact that employers could afford to be very secretive and um, kind of pay people as little as they're willing to work for. And so I think there's, I'm, I'm kind of neutral on the idea of this law, but I think it would need to be considerably amended to say like this is the kind of percentage range. I also think that part of the issue here is that there's no provision being given for the degree of experience that someone might have. And you could hire somebody that's completely green for the same position as somebody who's more experienced and want to have that degree of flexibility as an employer. And I think that this kind of undercuts that. So I I wonder if there's a way to amend this, which I think everyone is on board for saying that the good faith kind of trust was broken. But I think a degree of like saying this is the percentage range that you need to say, like even if it's within 40% or 50% or something very large, you need to have guardrails on either side or some sort of adjustable experience scale as well. Because I think you want to incentivize promising young people and you don't want to pay them the same amount as somebody who's established. And I think that's fair. You know, I could just say we were in New York. So I I think we've been complying with this well before that in part because we based on what we see, like we are, we try to benchmark ourselves like noticeably above what our quote unquote competitors offer. So we view this as a huge competitive advantage if everybody discloses, but I know there are a lot of, I won't name any companies, but I've definitely noticed there are certain companies that trade on their reputation to pay their workers less. And I think those people are probably not too happy about this. But also a lot of their competitors who know as much and are willing to poach people or at least start bidding wars, which I do think is a healthy thing for um, a market of being competitive for high achieving individuals at your company. Also, there's a little degree of public shaming here, which might be healthy, at least just to give people some semblance of transparency, even if this law ends up kind of dying in in short order, which I think potentially based on its rollout, it might at the very least now some people know a little bit more than they did before. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. I think that's all we have today. Just a few quick announcements. Uh, Pulso y Pendulo also has a YouTube page, our Spanish language show. So you could check that out. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, you could also check out their podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I've got a really special request on the voicemails because we're going to be doing a best of episode at the end of the year. So if you're a longtime listener and you have a sense of what some of your favorite segments are, leave us a voicemail at 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. You also could just send us ideas of topics you want us to talk about that we haven't hit yet, or just questions you have for us. Or if we, of course, got anything wrong, that's what the voicemail is for. We'll see you back here, same place, this coming Thursday. See you all later. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. 